Welcome to the Equipping You podcast, where our mission is to equip Alliance pastors and leaders to live spiritually healthy lives and lead healthy churches. Equipping You is a ministry of the Christian and Missionary Alliance. For more information on this podcast and other ministries of the Alliance, visit equippingyou.org. Hey, 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 welcome back to Equipping You podcast. This is season five, episode seven. We're coming to you mostly from Colorado Springs today, home of some of America's most beautiful views. Uh, pop up over a hill driving through town and there it is, Pikes Peak, the Garden of the Gods, the Air Force Academy Chapel. And uh, every day you look at that mountain, every time of the day you look at that mountain, it looks a little bit uh, different, looming out there on the uh, western horizon. Uh, What a beautiful city we're coming to you from today, a snow-covered city uh, on the day we're recording this. I'm Terry, Church Ministries Leader for the Alliance. And I am Alan, the Director of Multiplication for Eastern PA, and I will say that every time that I drive from the West to the East and I come into Pennsylvania, I'm thankful for our less high but still beautiful mountains. Pennsylvania is a beautiful state. I will not deny that. And uh, that beauty of Pennsylvania spills over into New Jersey, right, Caitlin? Oh, absolutely. I would argue that New Jersey is more beautiful than all of them which I'm sure oh. no one would agree with me on, well, but that's okay. I, I will just say New Jersey gets a bad rap, and uh, there are many beautiful areas, whether it's the beaches or the rolling hills and trees of uh, New Jersey. It's not all an oil refinery or a big warehouse in Newark somewhere. <laughs> nope. So, all right, uh, then. Caitlin is our producer, and we appreciate her uh, good uh, work and ministry with us. And our guest for this episode, uh, Alan, we're welcoming back Rich Velotis. Tell us about Rich and uh, tell us about his new book. Yeah, we had him for a Corona special edition because he was at the epicenter when uh, Corona first uh, came uh, in America. And uh, we said we wanted to have him back on to talk about this book. And I'm so glad we said that then because this is good now. Uh, The deeply formed life uh, is deep. Uh, it doesn't mean it's hard to understand. I don't mean deep in the sense of, wow, I'll never get through this. It's just deep. It hits you in the heart. And it, and it reframed some uh, helpful areas in terms of spiritual formation and spiritual practices that were really helpful for me. So I'm really looking forward to this conversation. Yeah, me too. So grab yourself a birch beer. It's a Pennsylvania Dutch thing. Yes, it is. Non-alcoholic, just in case you're wondering. <laughs> Sit back, relax. Here we go. Hey, Equipping You friends, it's Caitlin here, and I want to tell you about something super special that we have launched here at Equipping You that's just for you, and we think you're really going to love it. If you're an avid Equipping You listener, an Equipping You live attender, or both, you need to join our Facebook group called Equipping You Community. We love that on the podcast and at Equipping You Live, we get to empower you in your ministries. But we believe that for you to really see the true transformation of your leadership that you want, applying what you learn in community is key. So pause this episode right now and head over to facebook.com slash groups slash equipping you community. Or you can go to equippingyou.com and scroll all the way to the bottom and click on equipping you community. We can't wait to see you there. 
So we're pleased to uh, welcome back to the Equipping You podcast, Rich Velotis. Rich, thanks for joining us today again. Hey guys, thanks so much for uh, having me back. You uh, blessed us uh, during the uh, beginning of the uh, COVID era with uh, joining us on our podcast. And uh, for those who weren't listening at that time, didn't hear that edition, just give us a little snapshot of your uh, life and ministry journey. Yeah, in terms of my life, uh, I am a native Brooklynite, uh, been in New York all my life, uh, became a Christian some uh, 22 years ago. Uh, I was uh, 19 years old. And the cool story about my own conversion is I was the only one to give my life to Christ on that night. There was about 14 other family members as well. Uh, so quite a beautiful, dramatic uh, conversion, household conversion story. <laughs> and uh, it's pretty nice. Uh, I like to say that, you know, God's presence was moving so powerfully in that congregation that night that uh, my Chihuahua dog named Milo, who was, I know he had some demons in him, but he would have come to Christ. <laughs> On all Chihuahuas? <laughs> all Chihuahuas have demons in them, but. Yes. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> he would have come to Christ big time. Yeah, so, well, he should have been there. He should have been there. So, yeah. uh, so I, so in terms of, you know, that's the, in terms of how I came to Christ. Uh, and from that point on, uh, went to Nyack College, went to Alliance Theological Seminary, and then from that point on, I uh, found myself uh, at a uh, church in Spanish Harlem uh, for a couple of years, then went on staff at a congregation called Brooklyn Tabernacle, uh, where I led the college young adult ministry for a few years. And then I heard about this church called New Life Fellowship Church, which was about 15, 20 minutes away from my home. And I uh, heard about a guy named Pete Scazzaro who was writing about contemplative life and emotional health and thought, yeah, I think that's, I, I, that's the kind of congregation I want to be a part of. And so 12 years ago, found myself at New Life, uh, interviewing, became an assistant pastor and a preaching pastor, and then found out about two years later that Pete was going to be stepping out of his role. Uh, I didn't know that going into the interview process. Sometimes and we don't ask the right questions. That's exactly. How long are you going to stay here, man? You know, I didn't ask that question. <laughs> <laughs> and, and went through a process uh, with the board, a four-year process, and became the lead pastor seven years ago this October. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, I pastored New Life Fellowship, which is a beautiful congregation, 75 nations represented in a community mm. which beautiful. over 123 languages are spoken. And... Um, it's a, a, a beautiful, beautiful place. So that's a little summary of who I am and what I'm, what I'm up to. Thanks. That's Rich. great stuff. Yep. That's great stuff. I don't, I love that journey actually. It's really cool. Um, and I love the entertaining way you tell the story of your, your conversion in the book. That's hilarious. So we're going to get to it in a moment, but on that note, we, we're starting to ask all of our guests about leaders that have influenced them. And other than Pete Scazzaro, uh, you know, the, the guy who hired you and then deserted you. Um, <laughs> tell us about so, some who has influenced you in your life as a leader, you know, possibly early on. Oh my goodness. Um, yeah, the, the first leader who uh, really molded me was my grandfather. And uh, he was a leader in the local church that uh, our family became uh, Christian in. Uh, he was uh, a deacon there. He was uh, kind of kind of the, the, the theological scholar in residence in that small congregation. 
but the reason he impacted me significantly was after I became a Christian so for eight months um, before he passed away, he was very ill that last year. Uh, I would spend, you know, three to four days a week in his home for two to three hours each time, just studying scripture with him. And wow. he would disciple me four days a week. And whenever I didn't want to come over and study the Bible because I wanted to play basketball, I was 19 years old. I'd be like, grandpa, I don't want to come over today. He'd call the house and he lived down, he lived next down the street. So he'd call the house and say, uh, if you can't come today, I'm going to give you about 20 Bible verses that I want you to read and meditate. And then next week we're going to discuss them. <laughs> and so um, it was because of him that I started memorizing entire chapters of the Psalms. And uh, so he was the, the early influence. Uh, from that point on, it was a very um, familial environment I was in. I mean, in the two, within a two block radius, there were about 25 family members. Uh, and so I lived around cousins, uncles, aunts, and I had a few aunts who were deeply uh, connected to Jesus. And so they answered every question I had about faith for the first couple of years. And then from that point on, there was a, a guy named Chris Crutch, who he went to Nyack College as well. He was a few years ahead of me. And uh, I, I met him on campus one day and had a long conversation with him well into the night and found out he was a pastor in Spanish Harlem, New York. And he began to influence me significantly. So that's another guy added to the list. And then Ron Walborn, who's a good, you know, the Dean of Alliance Theological Seminary, he came into my life as well pretty early on. So I mean, those are some of the folks who, and Ron gave me a, a great uh, structure of preaching, as well as really a, a fresh perspective of the ministry of the Holy Spirit. So that all of that was in my first, I'd say, three years of becoming a Christian, those people mm -hmm. were pouring into me. That's beautiful. That's Fantastic. great stuff. So since we were together last, your book, uh, The Deeply Formed Life, uh, came out and became available. Tell us, Rich, why you wrote this book and the key areas of life that you address in the book. You know, when I first wrote it, I, I didn't have in mind a larger a strategy of what uh, what I see now, I think it's it, it, how I see the book. My The reason I wrote it was because of pastoral concern. Much like Eugene Peterson translated the Message Bible or paraphrased the Message Bible, the Message Bible came out of a Bible study. I believe it was through the book of Galatians. And he was trying to get his congregation to understand Paul's writings to the church, but they didn't understand it. So he said, let me make the language accessible. And in so doing, one thing led to the next. And, uh, you know, he has the, we have the message of Bible translation, uh, but it came out of pastoral concern for Peterson. And for me, uh, it came out of pastoral concern because the five values that I write about are the five values of our congregation. We call it, we use different language within our congregation. So for our church, we call it our five M's and, you know, monastic, multiracial, emotional health, marriage to Christ, missional. In the book, I just, I'm taking the same idea, but using different language, like contemplative rhythms, racial justice, interior examination, sexual wholeness, and missional presence. But it first started off because of pastoral concern. I wanted the congregation to grow deeper in these values. And when leaders started getting, you know, uh, launching out into different things, I wanted to give them something to say, this is who we are. This is what we're trying to do. And when new members came in, this is who we are. This is what we're trying to do. In so doing it, I started realizing, I, I, I think what I'm trying to do here is 
ambitiously reframing spiritual formation and trying to see spiritual formation in a more comprehensive, robust way, moving beyond the just individual spiritual practices and moving into some of the larger issues. How do we think formationally about race, formationally about sexuality, formationally about mission? Uh, and so it, it started in the congregation uh, out of congregational concern and pastoral concern, but it's morphed into what, for me, I think it's uh, what I like to think it's a paradigm f- of discipleship for following Jesus in the age we're in. Hmm. Great. That's good stuff. Uh, I was just talking to one of our pastors uh, recently, and I said that probably one of the uh, dangers of COVID season for me was it just somehow, some way, it just became hard to get settled mm. and to listen. And it was it was uh, painful to be honest. I didn't I didn't realize it at first, but your book is actually God has has used your book to help me to slow down. And I'm grateful for that. So can you talk to our listeners about the rhythms uh, of slowing down and how that's helpful? Yeah. uh, When I think about slowing down, a lot of people have asked me, did your rhythms change? Uh, And in, in one sense, the rhythms didn't change at all because, for example, just keeping Sabbath weekly had been something that I've been doing for 12 plus years every single, every single weekend. Uh, and so when the pandemic hit, the only thing my body knew how to do was 6 p.m. Friday to stop all my work and rest. Uh, and so because that's been so deeply entrenched in my bones over the past 12 years, my rhythms didn't change. And so uh, while my anxiety levels have hit, you know, I've hit levels that I've never had before in this pandemic, uh, the areas of of stress and conflict within the congregation. I don't think we've had this level of intensity within our congregation ever in terms of my own leading of the congregation. I've been here for 12 years, but in the lead pastor role for seven. And so on that level, it's been incredibly difficult, but my rhythms have been uh, pretty great because I've had this thing fixed for a while. And the goal, I mean, really it's, it's the story that I tell in the book where when I'm interviewing for the position 12 years ago, I'm in a diner talking to Pete Scazzaro and he says, Rich, the only way you'll get fired in this church as a pastor is if you don't take time to rest. And I thought that sounds strange. Mm -hmm. And he said, no, because you won't have the kind of life for God to sustain the work you're doing. You wouldn't have the life, the deep life with God to sustain the work you're doing for God. So I had to rest, I guess. Um, so that's the one thing I learned. The other thing I learned in this process is slowing down requires a community. It really does. I started to lead midday prayers three days a week and during the pandemic, starting in March. And at first I was doing, cause I was like, I'm going to want to be a good pastor. I want to connect people and have them pray. I realized this community is helping me pray. <laughs> and so mm, for March, good. April, May, June, July, and June, July, Every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, and then Holy Week, I led five days a week. I would have a 15 to 20-minute midday prayer, which I created a template, which based on silence, scripture, self-examination, supplication. And we did that every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. A couple of hundred people joined each time. And I realized people needed a community to get them to slow down to be with God. So what I've learned is the Sabbath is indispensable to sustaining 
not just a ministry or leadership life to sustaining a human life. And that community prayer is really requires a community. That's what we've learned from monasticism. Uh, it requires a community to help um, not just keep you accountable, but support you on the journey. So that's, that's what I, those are a few things I've learned of slowing down uh, over the past number of months. That's good stuff. Yeah. So in the book also, you talk about uh, the practice of self-examination. Wondering, Rich, if you could uh, share an example of people in scripture who incorporated self-examination and maybe a, a brief example from your own life of self-examination and, and, and what you've learned about yourself. Yeah. In terms of scripture, you know, I, I look at the entirety of the Psalms as an uh, expression of self-examination. Certainly it's uh, acts of worship, the praising of God's name, but so often in the scriptures, in the Psalms in particular, uh, David and the other psalmists are so in tune with what's happening in their soul. They are singing, writing and singing songs out of profound contemplation. Uh, and, you know, the, you know, David is able to articulate his fears, articulate his longings, articulate his anger, articulate his joy. And that really comes out of a place of deep interior examination. So the Psalms really serve as uh, a textbook for interior examination in and of itself. Uh, and so this is one of the reasons why I think praying the Psalms daily or on a weekly basis is so important because it helps us access and gives us language to what's happening deep within our soul. In my own life, interior examination is critically important because it helps me to to listen to God from within. So I'm not just listening to God in the scriptures and I'm not just listening to God when the preached message is coming out or songs of worship or in community, but um, I'm listening to God from the ways that the Holy Spirit is moving within me. And what has, well, I mean, I've had ample opportunity to do interior examination during this pandemic because <laughs> there's just so much stress and um, much more, much more um, uh, criticism that I've received, much more uh, pushback I've received. You know, why, why are we wearing masks? Should we not do this? When should we return? How many services are we having? Why are you saying Black Lives Matter? Why? I mean, just so much going on that I've had to now look, it, look within. And the, when I look within, it's pr primarily when anxiety hits me. And I sense a disproportionate reaction in me to something someone said. Mm. And whenever I sense anxiety arising because of what something, uh, because of what someone has said, I tend to have a framework of, of five questions that help me do interior examinations to get clear. And very simply, the five questions are: Whenever there's an event that provokes anxiety in me, what happened? What am I feeling? What's the story I'm telling myself? What's the gospel say? And what's the counter instinctual act that God is calling me into right now? Mm. Very simply, I remember getting criticized by someone who I really respect in the nation. And uh, this person had seen something I had put out on social media and, and private messaged me. And it was a pretty gentle critique. And it wasn't a massive thing. Uh, but I found myself so emotionally fragile at that moment because I was be being, being criticized. And because I had been working through those five questions, I took about 10, 15 minutes after um, 
cursing under my breath because how dare that person send me that email. Um, but, I've never done that. What do you mean? <laughs> <laughs> and so after I composed myself, I, I said, you know, what happened? Okay. A, a leader I respect had words of helpful criticism for me. What am I feeling? Deep shame. What's the story I'm telling myself? I will never be competent at this job. What's the gospel say? God uses incompetent people. <laughs> What's the counter instinctual act I need? And for me, whenever I get criticized or feel anxiety coming up, I tend to just go into my own hole internally and I don't let anyone in. But for me, the counter instinctual act was to share that with my wife to say, honey, I'm feeling really anxious and shame about something someone said. Can I process this with you? Typically, I wouldn't do that. But that interior examination has shortened this time span. Uh, that I find myself in dark holes emotionally. So uh, that's just one of the ways that I've used it. And I've had ample opportunity to do that the last seven, eight months. <laughs> that's beautiful. Uh, and I think you're striking us something that's really important to churches because I think for too long we people think about the gospel as just kind of the pathway to heaven and not about, and you hit this in other places in your book, but not realizing that the gospel truth impacts our daily lives. And i that's really practical way that it does. Mm. One of the things that was affirming to me is um, your use of the Lord's Prayer uh, every day. Talk to us about that. Yeah, you know, Jesus, the, the disciples asked Jesus to teach them one thing, not to, pr not to prophesy, not to preach, not to cast out demons. They said, can you teach us how to pray? And when, he, and when he taught them how to pray, he was pretty clear in terms of the words and the framing of it. And so I don't think there's a better prayer than the Lord's Prayer because it's from our Lord. And so I, I pray it uh, daily uh, because, and contemplatively uh, because I think it, it encompasses the entirety of the Christian life. Uh, and so um, after a time of silent prayer or reflection on Scripture, I will just stop and I end every time with the Lord's Prayer. And for me, it's not perfunctory. It's not... Uh, I'm not just going through the motions. I am listening to Jesus through these words. And it's amazing every time I get to, you know, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us, how much work the Holy Spirit does in my soul in those moments mm -hmm. because of the, the intensity of this particular moment that we're in. So I, th I would recommend it to anyone uh, and sometimes I don't even get too far. Sometimes I just say our father and I just stop there and realize the relationship I have with God is one that's to be marked by tenderness and intimacy and welcome and affirmation. Uh, but it's, it's my go-to prayer that um, I give myself to every single day. Mm. Wonderful. So New Life Fellowship has a representation from 75 countries. And uh, wondering what you've learned about the beauty of Christ's kingdom in the midst of the great diversity. I've learned, um, besides having good food. Uh, and <laughs> That's important. <laughs> That's a great lesson. <laughs> which is the thing I miss most about our gatherings. If you came to Queens on a Sunday, you are liable to, I mean, to have uh, Indian food, Filipino food, Indonesian food. Um, Puerto Rican food. I mean, you're going to get it all on a Sunday. And in different rooms, there's smells coming out everywhere. It's just glorious. Uh, so that's one of the things on the top of the list. What I've recognized is every ethnic culture 
uh, has a particular beauty and strength and angle that they see uh, God and see the scriptures and and see you know what it means to be human. And so, uh, so whether whether it is Filipino hospitality uh, or whether it is Puerto Rican and Dominican joy. Uh, there, there are various elements of just not what it means to be human and what it means to be part of the kingdom of God that we're seeing on a regular basis. Uh, and so uh, the languages, the values, and it's not that these values are not, every, every culture's values are not necessarily going to align perfectly with another's. <laughs> <And> so <Really? laughs> one culture might have a, a value of things starting on time. Uh, the others might have a value of just, you know, however this thing's going to last. And so, uh, you know, I thought they're supposed to start at three o'clock today. Uh, we'll get going, you know, it's like five o'clock, you know, and we'll, we'll, <laughs> we'll get started at some point. But I, but I think hearing the ways that people uh, understand God and, and draw out facets of uh, the scriptures uh, from various cultural vantage points is quite a beautiful thing. I think. Um going from diversity to the idea of racial justice and reconciliation in this, honestly, that's been another one of the more practical, helpful things for me. Uh, You know, I want to be a person that is working uh, towards racial justice. I want to be a contributor to the solution, not the problem. Uh, I feel like I have so much to learn, but just reframing it as a spiritual discipline Mm-hmm. was so helpful for me. Can you just unpack that a little bit here? Yeah, first of all, it's it's interesting that lots of people think that justice, racial justice, racial reconciliation, all of that is kind of an addendum. If you can get to it, fine. But if not, don't worry about it. We'll, we'll bring in a specialist and you don't have to worry about it yourself. And But this call is not just for the specialist. And this call is not just for people who find themselves in multi-ethnic spaces. This call is for every single woman. And and again, it goes back to how do we understand the gospel? And if we understand the gospel in an Ephesians 2 kind of a way, where it is the cross, that's just not a bridge that gets us to God, but a cross is a sledgehammer that tears down walls that separate us, tears down the dividing wall of hostility between Jew and Gentile. That is what the gospel is is and the fruit of the gospel you could argue that the primary fruit of the gospel is not going to heaven when you die but it is the new family that's created through the death and resurrection of jesus christ and so uh when i think about matters of race and justice and such i think this is core to what it means to be followers of jesus and to that end uh there there's a framework that i like to i you know, to help people think through this formationally and comprehensively that I tend to offer. And for those saying, how do I, how am I supposed to think about this? I like to, I like to offer two frameworks. The first is a smaller one. The second is builds on it. And so if we're going to talk about matters of race and justice, we have to think about it from an individual perspective, an interpersonal perspective, and an institutional perspective. And this is fully grounded in the scriptures, fully grounded in the Old Testament prophets. And Jesus stands within that tradition of those prophets. Uh, but building on that, I think if you're going to have a responsible conversation and then thinking about how to mobilize congregations into this deeper, I think there's six layers that we have to give 
our attention to when we're talking about race. And here are the six layers that I propose. I think we need to look at it theologically, historically, sociologically, ecclesiologically, politically, and formationally. And when I say politically, I'm talking about what are the policies in place that are to speak to racial justice, that we're not just talking about, let's just pray more, but what are the policies that must be confronted and reimagined for the sake of racial justice? But those are the six that I disciple people with, that I like to teach on, because a multifaceted problem requires multifaceted layers to address the comprehensive nature of it. So that's essentially the model that I like to um, you know, present to folks when folks are wondering, how do I move forward here? Yeah, that was very helpful. And just as well as uh, your focus on reconciliation. <laughs> uh, it's beautiful. I appreciate it, man, very much. It was very helpful for me uh, as a white man that wants to be contributing to this. Uh, and also to take the pressure off a little bit. So I kind of have a pathway to follow. Mm-hmm. Uh, so th- that's a gift. So thank you. Oh, it's great to hear. Thank you. So, Rich, you say in your book that deeply formed mission is first about who we are becoming before what what we are doing. Uh, talk about that a little bit. Convince those of us who are uh, always crazy busy doing things. <laughs> it is in our best interest for the long-term sustainability of our own personal lives and the witness of the gospel to do out of our being. Robert Mulholland, who Uh, used to be a professor at Asbury Seminary, and he's written a number of books on spiritual formation. He passed away a couple of years ago. But he said there's two ways of being in the world. There's being in God for the world or being in the world for God. And there's two, that's two radically different ways of being. Hmm. For the most part, we are in in the world for God. And that is, you know, where we got our missions trips, we have our cultural issues that we are concerned about, But the challenge with being in the world for God is you can do it without God. And sooner or later, our lives will not be able to sustain the work because Christian ministry, Christian mission requires us to be living this thing out of which we are giving something away. Uh, You know, this is Acts 3. The beggar comes to Peter and John and says, you know, give me money. And he says, silver and gold, I do not have, but what I do have, Mm -hmm. I give you, you know, I cannot give what I don't possess. Uh, And so folks who are all going a hundred percent all the time and a hundred miles an hour all the time, and and we don't have a time to be with God, there's only so much we're going to be able to give. But if we are focused on becoming uh, like Christ and being with Christ, it starts Filling over our lives. Uh, so all of, now it's not us working, it's Christ working in me now. I think for the long-term future of the church, one of the greatest acts of mission is learning to be with God. And if we can be with God and abide in God, uh, I think the, the spirit begins to move in us in really profound ways, uh, which makes it, I mean, I don't want to call it, he did say my, my, my burden is easy. My, my, you know, my yoke is light, my burden is easy. I think it flows from a different it flows from a different place when we're when the emphasis is on being with God and becoming like Christ. So I mean, I'm all for the pro, the, the the missions trips. I'm all for the building of the working in the, the poor community. I mean, we have we have lots of activity going on in Queens here, 
but the hope is that it's flowing from a different center, a deeper center in God. That's good. That's good. It reminds me a little bit of um, Sky Jatani writing in with mm. just the idea of doing life with instead of for, mm-hmm. <laughs> for God. You know, another challenging area in our society right now uh, is the issue of sexuality. Yeah. And again, so glad that you're merging these topics. It's very helpful. But when you're talking about sexual formation and wholeness, um, you say the love of God doesn't remove our desires, it reorders them. That might be a new statement for some people, a new idea for some people. Can you unpack that a little bit? Uh, and I think if I remember, you got some stuff in there too about diets and how that all fits together. Um, yeah. If you can unpack some of that, it would really be helpful. You know, when it, when it comes to our bodies and our desires, Christians often have a, uh, a very interesting relationship with that. And just biblically, we have a Jeremiah 18 kind of relationship with our desires and our hearts. Jeremiah says, you know, the heart is deceitful above all things who can understand it. And we live with that theology and forgetting that the Holy Spirit has come. And our hearts now have moved from being hearts of stone to hearts of flesh in Christ. And so our hearts are no longer deceitful above all things. Certainly there's deceit that we have to be mindful of, but our hearts now also have the spirit of God, which requires great discernment. So I think we need to move beyond just the Jeremiah 18 view of our desires so that anytime a desire comes, we go, oh, this must not be of God because my heart is wicked. So that's, that's, a, it's a, that's a very narrow and uh, scarcity mentality way of seeing our relationship with God. Related to those diets, I I use this framework that comes out of Christopher West's book, Fill These Hearts, where he talks about uh, three different diets to help us understand our our desires and our sexuality. And uh, the goal of my chapters is to create greater integration between our spirituality and our sexuality. The diets are the starvation diet, the fast food diet, and the banquet. And for West, he says that Christians, uh, by and large, uh, tend to emphasize the starvation diet. That is our relationship as it pertains to our desires, our sexuality, etc., is marked by suppression and repression. And so, uh, you know, we can't talk about sexuality. We, got, we do it in hushed t- tones. I remember we were doing a conference at... Uh, at New Life on Emotionally Healthy Leadership. And Jerry Scazzaro got up and was giving a talk and at some point was talking about why uh, our sexuality, and our, she was talking to marrieds, why our love life has everything to do with our leadership. And she mentioned the word uh, penis and vagina. And the the people in the people who are listening right now are probably falling off their chair. Uh, but, <laughs> but the, the, the murmurs in the room, oh, I can't believe I'm thinking these are biologically adequate and appropriate words to, under, to understand the human body. And yet there was a middle school kind of feel in the room of like, Oh, how, how are we going to say that? And I'm thinking if Christians can't even talk about this, how in the world are we going to navigate some of the larger challenges and complexities of sexuality in our age. And Mm. so we have to move beyond repression and suppression. And in Christian cultures in particular, 
much of the acting out that takes place, especially like sexually comes because often it's been an environment of suppression. It's been an environment of starvation, uh, of our longing, longings and desires are bad. So you got to bop it on the head and not forget about it. Focus on Jesus. And then next do you know, affairs, next do you know, all kinds of acting out that's taking place. There must be a better way than starvation and repression and suppression. And hopefully I'm offering a way of, of connecting our bodies to our, our spirituality, to our sexuality, and you know, what it means to follow Jesus faithfully in the world. Uh, that's, that's something that is uh, a section of the book that will be really helpful, I think, in today's world. And um, I mean, oh my goodness, there's so much mixing up and, mm-hmm. and healing that we need. So, man, we, you know, we've only scratched the surface on your book, um, but we are really thankful. Uh, honestly, we could probably have a, a 90 minute uh, conversation with you today and still be scratching the surface. It is truly, as the title says, deeply formed life. So I encourage others to slow down and, and reading it uh, as you do and just take your time because that's what I found out I needed to do. Not because it's hard to read, to be honest. It's not really hard to read. It's, you're straightforward. Yeah. But it, you just, it's just meaty mm. and, and helpful. Uh, so thank you. So may we all slow down and allow Jesus to deeply form us. Thanks for uh, addressing a lot of these practical areas of life, things that we're facing in our culture. From a spiritual formation standpoint, Rich, we appreciate you. Hopefully, we whetted people's appetites today with this, uh, you know, little uh, tip of the iceberg uh, talk about your uh, book, and they'll buy it and read it. But we really appreciate you taking the time to be with it with us, and appreciate you and appreciate your ministry. Thank you so much. Absolutely. It's an honor to be here, guys. So thanks for the invitation. And keep being a light on Twitter, for Pete's sake. There's not <laughs> enough light there, and you, you you bring light to Twitter every time. And. and Except when you talk about basketball. Other than that, it's always. Whenever I talk about sports for that matter, I'm cursed, but uh, God's doing a deep work in me. Well, thank you, my friend. I appreciate you. you. Thanks, Rich. Blessings. Alan, great interview. I I appreciate uh, about Rich's book, how it impacts so many different uh, areas of our lives from from a spiritual perspective and kind of prophetic when you're writing a book, um, months ago and include uh, stuff about racial reconciliation that has been always important, but always, uh, but uh, so front and center uh, in the last several months. Uh, what'd you appreciate about what Rich had to say, Alan? You know, I appreciated his honesty for one. Uh, the idea that he's talking about his own anxieties in a book where, you know, he's talking about slowing down and addressing anxiety. He's was wide open, which to me is a sign of somebody that's been marked by Jesus. Uh, when they're not afraid to talk about their own uh, challenges. So I appreciate that about Rich. Uh, it comes through loud and clear in the book too. So I'm grateful for that. So that is, yeah, I think that's my biggest takeaway. So we encourage you to get your hands and eyes on uh, Rich's book, The Deeply Formed Life. Alan would say, read it slowly and uh, soak it in and allow the Spirit of God to use it in your life and uh, share this podcast, share that book with others. And um, let it not just bless you, but bless others as well. So we look forward to having you back next time uh, on the next episode of Equipping You Podcast. Until then, keep the faith.
Thank you for joining us on this episode of the Equipping You podcast. If you liked this episode, please consider subscribing and rating our channel. We hope you will join us for our next episode. For more information on this podcast and other ministries of the Alliance, visit equippingyou.org.